This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to the Clay Young Show. I know, I know. It's been sporadic the last few weeks. Welcome back to the Clay Young Show, episode 150. So glad to have you here. And man, so much has gone on since I told you we were going to be doing this episode. And, uh, you know, just there's a lot happening in Louisiana, a lot happening in Baton Rouge, a lot going on with the company. Been doing a lot of moving around, I think, as we sit to record this open. This will be the first week this year that I haven't had to be out of town on business. And, you know, not complaining about it. You got to do what you got to do, right? But it is, (laughs) it's good not having to be either in an airport or on the highway for a few days. But uh, when duty calls, you answer. So, our guest on this edition of the show has been, uh, he was our first guest, our 50th guest, our 100th guest, and he will be our 150th guest. I told him we'd keep this trend going, and that is now Commissioner of Administration Jay Darden when he was a guest on the 100th show. I believe he was the outgoing lieutenant, I know he was the outgoing lieutenant governor, I don't know that he had officially signed on with Governor John Bell Edwards' administration, then at the time, uh, Governor-elect John Bell Edwards. And it's been interesting here in Louisiana and interesting here with the politics. A year ago, we were talking in this part of the year about a budget deficit and what do we do to replace the billion-dollar, more-than-billion-dollar shortfall that we have. And here we are again with that same discussion And I think people in the state are starting to roll their eyes and go, why do we do this every year? Well, the commissioner and I are going to talk about that and talk about the working relationship between Republicans in the legislature and the governor's office. We will talk about where there could be cuts to the budget, where there could be changes or I don't know, streamlined money removed or maneuvered to cover some of this shortfall. He'll answer that. He'll talk about the specter of tops over this budget deficit. And we'll get into some other things with him as well. He's pretty candid, as most of you who have heard him know. And we will go into all of the details about that. Before I go any further, I just want to thank all of you who have made the time to listen to this podcast. It has been really a labor of love. It has provided me with an opportunity to keep some of my talk radio chops, still keep up with people who are movers and shakers in politics, and in some cases entertainment, and some in some cases in history, and, and in leisure, and in leisure. The 151st episode of The Clay Young Show will feature our conversation with David Savona, who is the executive editor of Cigar Aficionado magazine. Looking forward to that. But I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten from you guys. And the last couple of weeks have been so choppy because of traveling. And I wanted to get to this interview because this was the one that I wanted to do. We were going to try to get the governor on and could not work that out. But I'm not done working on. And I think we'll do that is get the governor on here as well to talk about some of the same things that I talk about with Commissioner Darden. And that's coming up in just a moment. So uh, thank you again for 150 episodes. We've got some things we're working on this year. It's been a while and there's been just, you know, I don't like jinxing things, knock on wood, before mentioning it. But I've got some meetings coming up with some people as it relates to podcasts. I had a conversation yesterday about it 
with someone and growing the category and the catalog of shows offered here at podcast225.com. So you guys will hear about it and turn over some pages. I appreciate all of you who listen to the Waiting Room podcast by the ladies at the Wellness Studio. Their last one about the Me Too movement was in, it was extremely interesting and in some ways very eye-opening. If you haven't heard that episode, check out episode 26 of the Waiting Room podcast right here at podcast225.com. And you can share our podcast with people when you hear it. You see those links on social media. Share it. Drum up a little uh, support for what we're doing here with the show. We always try to shoot you straight and be transparent. As I tell every guest who comes onto the show, what we talk about and what is recorded is what makes the air. And because I don't have to worry about language with most guests, even if they drop uh, drop an expletive, it, it doesn't really matter. It still makes the air. I like people to be raw and transparent and that whole thing. And we've had some fun, and I hope to have a lot more fun as the weeks and months go by. But we're going to try to not have any more delays as we move forward. This has been the longest period of being choppy with these that I've done in the more than two years that we've been doing this show. And uh, I apologize about that. We'll do a little better going forward, but it's just been busy. And because my name is in the show and because I host it and because there's only one me, I haven't figured out a way to do something about that yet. As it relates to hosting the show, the moving around has been a little bit of an issue. But even with the travel, we'll make certain that we don't leave you hanging without the CYS. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at Clay Young BR and on Facebook backslash Clay Young. And you'll see the dapper fellow in the suit with that pose that's been both copied and ridiculed over the last few years. I got to get another one done. I'll work on that. All right. Without any further delay, a quick break and then back with Commissioner of Administration for the state of Louisiana, Jay Darden here on the Clay Young Show. Promote your business or organization on Podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the Podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. And now today's Manners Minute. Samuel Langhorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, once said... It is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. He was right, wasn't he? Many of us have the physical courage to step on a sports field, knowing we're going to be battered and bruised by the end of the game, the match, or the event. But how many of us have the moral courage to stand against the invasion of immorality in our society? How many of us are training our children to be just as morally strong as they are physically strong? It takes more moral courage than most of us can muster to stand up when everyone else is sitting down. If you choose respect, you'll have the moral courage to do the right thing and teach your children to do the right thing too. Visit hashtag BRRespect at mannersoftheheart.org to join the movement and sign the pledge with respect Baton Rouge thrives. Welcome back to The Clay Young Show. Back with the Commissioner of Administration, Jay Darden, who is a longtime Louisiana. 
I guess you could say someone who's been in service. I almost said serviceman, but you've been in elected office now for well over two decades, correct? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not anymore, but yes, well, it's been since 1988, so well, it's been a while. I think going into here, you saw this as an opportunity to be a part of the process of uh, doing some some sort of restoration to Louisiana. And uh, as I was as joking in the opening segment a second ago, it said, you know, you can count on Jay for at least every 50 episodes. And here we are at episode 150 and you're back again. You were one, you were 50, you were 100 and now 150. I'm, I'm glad to <laughs> celebrate those anniversaries with you. I am too, my friend. And so here we are now, another year, another budget crisis. It is something we seem to repeat every year, uh, over a billion dollar budget shortfall that's facing you and the team in the governor's office and the governor and the legislature. And, you know, an obvious question that pops up when these kinds of things happen is how do we keep repeating this every year? It seems like we just don't learn. Um, the notion of solving problems on a temporary basis, unfortunately, has been epidemic in Louisiana. And it's one of the things we're trying to avoid this time, saying, let's fix this once and for all. The legislature created a task force to look at the structure of our taxation in Louisiana. They've reported. Uh, the legislature has before them every recommendation that they made. The governor has said he would embrace any and all aspects of those recommendations. And this is an opportunity that, that I think everyone saw. Uh, 27 months ago that 2017 would be our opportunity to fix this. And 2017 came and went, and we didn't fix it. We've been talking about the reality of this fiscal cliff now during that entire time period, and certainly during the last uh, 12 months and more actively within the past six months. And and now it's upon us. If something is not done by July 1, a billion dollars in state general fund revenue rolls off the books, and it's either got to be replaced or Cuts have to be made at that magnitude, and, and the legislature is not going to want to do that. They've shown no penchant for cutting when they had opportunities to cut previously. All the cuts that have been made have been at the governor's behest, and so we're going to be at that point in time here pretty quickly that we've either got a recognized replacement revenue or cut the budget. There has been chatter about a special session that would deal specifically with the budget. Will that happen? I think it will. Um, as, as we talk today, it's it's Tuesday, and uh, the governor's got to issue that call by Friday of this week as a practical matter because the session has got to take place in the short time frame after Mardi Gras and before the regular session begins in early March. Um, so I think by the end of the week you will see a call being issued. I'm hopeful that will be the case. It's certainly possible that it won't happen if the, if the House leadership is not able to come forward with specific things that they're willing to vote for when it comes to revenue. But if that happens, and I think we're on a track for that to happen, I'm hopeful, then you'll see the call issued this week. I've seen some quotes saying that there isn't enough, there hasn't been enough agreement between members of the legislature and the governor to justify a special session. Does your answer now mean that the, the two sides are a bit closer on what needs to be done? Well, there was finally some movement this week with some information coming forward from the speaker to the governor. And there was also movement in that a number of senators, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, called upon the governor to call the session, even if he didn't have the agreement that he was looking for from the House. And the thinking being, at least if we're in session, then there's a possibility that something could get done. The governor said all along he was not going to call a session and waste money unless 
the House leadership indicated revenue measures that it would support that would make up the revenue that is falling off the books. Um, and to the extent that that may have softened a little bit, it's primarily because we're finally getting some mention of revenue on the table. And the, the Senate and its leadership has said, you know, we really want to be here. We think something can get done if we're in session. It's interesting because, you know, you've talked about a combination of both possible taxes and then some changes to the way revenue is working in Louisiana, maybe some some spending adjustments there. Let's take them separately first, because I don't really love taxes. I'll get to that last. What would you recommend in the way of adjusting the way we spending, reprioritizing some of what's in the budget, specifically when there's so little that you can move anyway? Well, there is little that, that can be um, can be moved around, and this is what we've been talking about. We we have a we have a nine point six billion dollars state general fund budget in the current year, which ends on June thirtieth. That number, according to the Revenue Estimating Conference, is going to drop to about eight point six billion with the fiscal year beginning on July one. So that's a billion dollars in state general fund that is not going to be available. And when you look at the state general fund spending in Louisiana, and you recognize that. Over half of those dollars I mentioned are non-discretionary expenditures that the Constitution mandates. For example, $3.5 billion for the MFP program, the K-12 education in Louisiana, $123 million for supplemental pay to law enforcement personnel across the state, $90 million for revenue sharing to local governments. $14 million for elections, $700 million to pay down our unfunded accrued liability in the retirement systems. You add all that up, and you're left with basically $3.4 billion that the legislature has some discretion over. If you knock a billion dollars off of that number, you can see that it's a pretty dramatic reduction in, in money that you have to spend. And those dollars are concentrated in higher education, health care, and K-12 education. Almost 80% of that disposable money is committed in those areas. So when you have to cut, the only place you can cut is where those dollars are, and those big dollars are in those areas. So the governor's critics like to say, like to claim that this is just a scare tactic and he's just doing this to uh, try and raise revenue. And the, the truth of the matter is, it is scary, but it's not a tactic. I mean, this is the reality in which we must deal. And the governor has an obligation to present a balanced budget, and that's what we've done and reluctantly said if we don't have the revenue, the cuts are going to have to come out of tops and higher education and, and uh, health care overall. And those are dramatic, painful, draconian cuts. And let me add, which we've been saying repeatedly, we don't want to do that. We don't support the budget that we had to introduce. We, we believe the revenue to replace the money that's falling off ought to be raised by the legislature. The temporary taxes were put in place for 27 months, knowing that this day of reckoning would come, and we're not asking to raise new taxes. We're saying let us continue what the legislature already has put in place, but let's do it in a different way. That sales tax is going to drop from 5% to 4%. How much of this deficit is is that change going to or how much is that contributing to this deficit that's going to be created it's well over 800 million dollars right. of the 996 or so billion that falls off the cliff yeah. on june 30th so it's the vast percentage of um, what is falling off yeah 
and it, and it was designed to be temporary. It's made us the highest combined state and local sales right. tax in the nation, which right. is one of the reasons why we think it should not be continued. I, well, I and I agree with that. You, you know, you mentioned retirement and tops. Let's take those separately. Louisiana has a large number of retirees who, if commissioner, they decided all together on one day to just, okay, it's time to hang it up and go fishing or whatever. That would really create a nightmare for the state of Louisiana. What are we doing, if anything, to address retirement and the vehicles that we are using for all of the state employees that at some point are going to be getting off payrolls? Well, we've we've been recognized as in the top five states in the country in dealing with our unfunded accrued liability. Mm-hmm. Many states have the same problem. Right. We have it we have a big problem in Louisiana. But the good news is years ago we agreed to address it and we did so constitutionally so that every year we pay down the unfunded accrued liability. It will be reduced to zero um, I don't remember the exact year, but it's in the 2020s somewhere, I believe. We, it costs us about $700 million a year to do that. Yeah. So we've, we've recognized our problem. We're owning up to it. We're funding it. But it costs us on an annual basis an awful lot of money. And, you know, it's, it, it is something. Do you think the public has a grasp of that aspect of money that we spend every year and, and how it's a necessity spend, uh, spend? But do you think the public understands that? Well, I, I think the public understands it. I don't, I don't know that it's something that uh, every Joe citizen has on the tip of their tongue or, or could be speak to it with uh, with any degree of, of uh, background. But, um, you know, we, we've done everything we can do to try and educate folks and educate the media and educate legislators on why this problem is so real and why it's so acute. Um, and, and why we have to do something about it. And, and there are a lot of people out there who, who don't want to accept the facts and who want to twist the facts for, for their political purpose. Um, but we've tried to be completely factual in everything we've put forward and, and talked in terms of what the reality is and that this money has been part of our budget approved by the legislature and that it's going away. You know, the there's a story in, uh, on Nodal.com from, I guess, a week or so ago and a couple of weeks or so ago by uh, Julie O'Donohue talking about tops and how these cuts could you know swipe away 80% uh, of of the funding for tops tops has been a hot button discussion as it relates to this budget uh, ever since that that primetime press event the governor did i guess well over a year ago it is something that draws heated responses depending on which side you're on. What is the reality about TOPS, and what do you think is going to happen? Well, the reality is it's one of the best things this state has ever done, and, and uh, the governor supports it wholeheartedly and wants to fund it wholeheartedly. Um, it's an expensive proposition. It's grown from less than $100 million a year when it began to about $300 million right. a year in, in, in state, mostly state general fund dollars. Um, and it needs to be funded. But when you have to cut a billion dollars and you have only $3.4 billion available to you, if we were to protect TOPS completely in the proposed budget, we would have to make even more deep cuts, and they're already dramatic in the area of the Department of Health. We'd have to cut into the uh, Department of Children and Family Services, which we did not propose any cuts. I mean, that's dealing with child welfare, child support, dealing with kids in crisis, foster homes, and what have you. Um, There's no place else to go. In fact, one of the exercises I went through in in trying to prepare this budget 
I said, I want to I want to take away every state general fund dollar from every department of government except higher education and health care um, and corrections. Um, and so if we didn't provide a nickel of funding to everything else in government, my department, the Division of Administration, the Department of Revenue, uh, every other aspect of government, including the legislature and the judiciary. Now, this is a totally impractical and unrealistic unreali- sure. exercise, sure. but I went through it for the purpose of, of, of figuring out what it meant. And what it meant was we could take away every nickel, just not have government, literally funded by state general fund except for the, these those top areas and we still need to make cuts in higher education and health care they don't add up to enough dollar wise to solve the fiscal cliff it, it's that it's that dramatic and, and that just shows you how much money goes into higher education uh health care and k-12 education out of the general fund it, as i say it's almost 80 percent of the budget it's so interesting because there is a lot of discussion, as I'm, I'm sure you know, about higher ed and the funding for higher ed. But then on the other side of it, there is so much discussion about how we don't do enough to get dollars to uh, you know, institutions of higher learning and get it in you know, K through 12 and all of the discussion about education. And so, you know, how do you reconcile the one side that says we're tying up so much money over here? It weighs on the budget over there. And then the other side who says we need to spend more money and prioritize more money for education in Louisiana. Well, that's precisely the debate that has to take place. I mean, are, are we spending enough? I mean, there are those who say we're spending too much. But when you look at what, what uh, Louisiana spends uh, per capita compared in higher education, we're, we had the biggest drop in funding for higher education in the country over the course of the past decade. And we had the highest increase in tuition because the previous administration just was just cut out completely uh, new funding for higher education and allowed universities to just keep raising tuition to try and make ends meet. So the result is our tuition has grown faster than any other state in America, and our overall support for higher education has been less than any other state. That's not the way it ought to be. And and we, we have to recognize that we're going to have to invest in higher education in order to make our universities what we want them to be. I mean, LSU is the flagship university um, for this state, and it's ranked in the 400s in terms of overall rankings of universities nationally. And I know there are all kind of different ratings and all kind of different rankings, but I think it's generally agreed that we can do an awful lot better uh, by way of our higher education system in Louisiana than we've done in the past. And this administration is committed to that and evidenced by the fact that for the first time in a decade, we did not cut higher education in the current year's budget, and we don't want to cut it next year. And so it takes us back to where we started. What is the perfect scenario here to deal with this and not have to repeat this in 16 months? But you've talked about how we've, we've used one-time money for recurring expenses, and that has been a problem Louisiana has been dealing with for probably you know the last 12, 13, 14 years ever since Katrina. And it's really, all the- been the past, really been the past eight years more more. Uh, well, more than the past 12 or 13. I mean, it really was a function of the previous administration because when Steli was partially repealed, the loss of revenue to the state, $700 million, $800 million, was masked by use of one-time money to make up those dollars. So it appeared that we really didn't have a problem. But we were just all the while marching toward the day when we ran out of one-time money and funds to sweep, yeah. and that happened just about the time that the new governor took office. But per- I, 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 I agree. Can, can I push back one? I, I agree with you, sure. but I remember 
when Katrina happened, as you recall, there were so many federal dollars that came. You know, Kathleen, Governor Kathleen Blanco left with a billion and a half, uh, you know, uh, uh, budget surplus. And a lot of that right. was because of the federal dollars that came into the state and we paid down some things. But then that money was committed to recurring expenses. And and I guess you're right. It's probably more the last eight or nine years. And to me, philosophically, I never understood why that was allowed to go on for so long. Uh, well, it, it's hard to mesh with a, a, a conservative philosophy uh, because a conservative philosophy does not spend um, one-time money on recurring purposes. But that's exactly what happened under the previous administration. We've changed that. We don't have a nickel of one-time money in the two budgets that this governor has presented. We're not going to have any because it doesn't make sense. It's not the right thing to do, and we're going to be honest with the people and with the legislature and say you're going to only use recurring dollars for recurring purposes. We had $860 million in one-time money that was in the budget we inherited in 2016. We don't have any money non-recurring money in our budgets and and we're, we're going to do things in a fiscally sound way i mean this is a fiscally sound way to do it even though you would know it by listening to a lot of the governor's critics and so going back to you were getting ready to talk about the perfect scenario yeah, here. There, there's no there's no perfect solution but given where we are right now what what needs to happen in my view is the legislature needs to come into a special session beginning right after mardi gras and adopt enough of the recommendations of the task force to generate the $996 million or so that is falling off the books on July 1. If that happens, we will be able to fully fund TOPS. We'll be able to restore funding for higher education. We won't have to make the incredibly dramatic cuts in health care that otherwise would have to be made, yet we will still have to make cuts in the budget because the money that the governor is saying we ought to raise is less than what we actually need just to keep going with what we've got. So there still will be cuts imposed, and we'll have to make some cuts, and some of them are going to be difficult, but it won't be at the draconian level as proposed in the in the mandated executive budget. You know, there are, you, you talked about critics of uh, Governor John Bell Edwards and, and some of the, the people who've been so loud, and we mentioned the possibility of a special session. And are you familiar with the Pelican Institute? I am. And what they have been saying, they're saying that the special session would be about raising taxes. And, and even in the written piece, it, it puts quotation marks around fiscal cliff. And, you know, saying that basically there's some gerrymandering of, of, of factual details here. What is your response to people who say, look, the governor's office doesn't really want to fix this. They just want to raise a bunch of taxes. Well, you know, you, you can spin it how you want to spin it, I guess. The, their, their argument, as I appreciate it, is that since these taxes are going to expire on June 30th, that if you replace them with new money, that is going to be a new tax. And so you're raising taxes. I think a more sound view is that the legislature two years ago recognized that we had a $2 billion problem. It raised a billion dollars in revenue, had some additional cuts, and said we're only going to do this temporarily. So in 27 months, these taxes are going to go away, but we're going to have to continue a revenue stream to fund the operation of government at the level we recognized was necessary two years ago. So the the point our point is this money is growing off the books. It does not exist anymore come July 1. If you don't want to fund certain aspects of government, you want to let a million dollars go by the wayside, 
tell us where you want to cut. I haven't heard the Pelican Institute or anybody, for that matter, say we don't need that billion dollars. Here's where we would cut. Here are the services we won't provide. Here's who won't get money. And I've been going through this exercise for quite a while, but also in these two years. And I'm telling you, you cannot cut a billion dollars out of this budget without making devastating, painful reductions that the people of this state are not going to tolerate. You cannot do it. And I challenge anybody to come forward and propose the billion dollars in cuts and tell us specifically where they're going to come from. Not a single legislator has done that in two years. Not a single legislator has responded to this cliff by saying, Here's what we'll cut. Now, several of them have said, we don't need a special session. We don't need to raise taxes. We just cut the budget. Where? The question, and it's a fair question, is where? You tell us what you don't want to fund. That's the legislator's prerogative. And when they come in, if they don't want to fund things, you tell us what you're going to cut out of the budget. But there's been deafening silence when it comes to what cuts would you make. And, And I've said, the governor said, I mean, the people, the media, everybody needs to say, Okay, if you don't want this revenue, what do you want to quit doing? What is it you don't want to fund? It's a very tall order to try and make that happen, particularly given the constitutional limitations that that limit us. Well, and you know that you, you, that you mentioned that here in, in EBR, where we are, you know that there's not going to be any toleration for more talk about taxes, having some of the highest in the nation. And, and I'm, I'm sure people in other parts of the state will say the same thing. And your discussion about, hey, where do we cut? Where do we cut? What is the communication like between the governor's office and members of the large conservative caucus of legislators? Well, there's been some communication through the past months. The governor has, has precipitated a number of meetings. Uh, the the communication greatly improved this week when, for the first time, we, we actually got some specific proposals from the House leadership, but it, it's taken this long for that to happen. But that's exactly the kind of communication that has to take place to see if we're going to resolve this. And we, we, we keep saying, if you don't want the revenue, tell us what you don't want the government to do. And if you're willing to vote for some revenue, tell us which items that the task force has recommended are you willing to support. And let's agree to do it on a permanent basis. Let's not recreate the sins of the past and start over with temporary taxes that have to be renewed every year, every two years, every 27 months, whatever it may be. And it's interesting, as you know, uh, U.S. Senator John Kennedy has been talking a lot about the state budget issues here, and there is Obviously, he's put it out there that he's interested in running for governor. And so you you have to screen a lot of what he says through that prism. But he's not a big fan of the way the governor is handling things here. And and he has been largely known as someone with a, a sound grasp of the fiscal situation and reality in Louisiana. And he's he's not been in agreement with your approach here. What what are your thoughts about Senator Kennedy chiming in so much about this? I haven't heard, again, any specifics from John or or anybody else as to what they think we ought not be funding. I mean, that would be the first question. And, and Clay, let me tell you, this situation would be the same if David Vitter was the governor or Scott Angel or me, the people that ran uh, back in 2015. The facts wouldn't be any different. The challenges would be the same. And were a Republican governor, he would have to either make these difficult cuts or find a way to replace this revenue. It's the exact same scenario. And so I don't know that I completely agree that John has had a complete grasp on what we're doing budget-wise because he, he um, we just hadn't seen any specifics as to what he thinks government ought not be doing with the dollars that we have. 
I know it's a tough question to ask in lieu of all of the, the the budget deficit talk that's going on, but I think you'll agree Louisiana is in large need of infrastructure improvement and modernization in many parts of our state. And money's tight, especially in the small rural communities. But what do we do about that? And what's the long-term plan to address infrastructure in Louisiana? And then some of the ways that we prioritize spending on, quote-unquote, quality of life atmospheres in Louisiana, if that makes any sense. Well, I guess I'd say there are two, two aspects to your question. The first has to do overall with the capital outlay bill. Yeah. And that is the, the, the expenditure of state dollars to build things, to repair things, and, and to uh, take care of capital needs. We won't have a capital outlay bill if we don't fix the fiscal cliff because yeah. the Constitution limits our debt to 6% of the state general fund. So as the state general fund is shrinks, it limits what we can do by way of capital improvements. And that, that's another uh, aspect of this whole deal that has not gotten a lot of attention. But we literally would not have enough money to fund even projects that we have underway right now if we don't solve the cliff. So we will be stopping projects that have already begun, and we will not begin any new ones. So we have ongoing capital needs in this state. And this administration has come in and done something that was never done before in prior administrations. We created a specific capital outlay fund for infrastructure improvements, for highways and bridges, as well as for deferred maintenance on college campuses. And we funded that as a matter of priority um, in the capital outlay bill. And we want to continue doing that. So this is an unprecedented commitment to the infrastructure of the state going forward. The second component of that is what do we do long term about these major infrastructure needs that we know are out there? Everything from a second bridge in Baton Rouge to replacing mm-hmm. the bridge in Lake Charles to providing new off-ramps at the airport in New Orleans where they're building um, a whole new terminal that will yeah. be closer to the interstate and is going to need a new exit. Uh, as well as I-49, completion of I-49 South uh, from Homa and Lafayette in that area. Those are major, major expenditures that are not contemplated in the ongoing capital outlay budget. They're going to require a big infusion of federal dollars, and you'll have to have some local match available. Yeah. And they are going to also potentially involve the use of public-private partnerships, three triple P's as they're called, public-private partnerships, which contemplates tolling. Yeah. where you, you authorize a private entity to build something and to collect tolls in order to help offset the long-term cost. And that's something that this administration has embraced. The problem is figuring out how it works financially because yeah. you can't impose a toll that is so high. For example, we, we couldn't put a toll bridge in, in South Louisiana to complete I-49 and have a $10 toll or a $12 yeah. toll. It's just right. not feasible. Right. You've got to have a, a smaller number that helps offset the bonded indebtedness as well as having the, the cash necessary in the long term to, to pay for it. So unfortunately, those kind of major infrastructure needs are a ways away. and We keep talking about them and working on them, and this administration is committed to trying to find some answers, but it, it, it like everything else, unfortunately, it's going to take additional funds. And if, if the president has his way with a major infrastructure program at the federal level, that will certainly open the door for this to become more of a reality. I agree with you. You know, there was a report by the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they they panned the entire United States as having poor infrastructure. I think their overall grade for the nation was a D, but they went through a litany of, of categories for Louisiana, and obviously 
the infrastructure reality that we face today has been in place for a long time. I mean, you guys didn't create it. You kind of inherited it and, and are having to deal with it. But I want, I want to run through a few of the grades that they give and see which ones you disagree with. And some of these will make sense because we know we haven't had the cash to do a lot of this or it hasn't been top of mind. Aviation, they give us a C. Bridges, they give us a D plus. Uh, along our coast, they give us a D plus. A lot of that has to do with the federal government. Uh, dams, C plus. Drinking water, D minus. Inland waterways, D minus. Levees, C. Ports, C minus. Roads, D. Uh, wastewater, C minus. Solid waste, C plus. And for an overall GPA of a D plus. Does anything in that I said in that list make you shake your head and go, well, that's not real, or do you go, yeah, that's pretty much the reality? No, I'm afraid that is probably the reality. I can't comment on the individual grades because I'm not familiar with the study and don't know what the criteria was, but I'm not surprised that overall from an infrastructure standpoint, um, anybody that examined, that examined Louisiana would be critical of it because we do have a lot of deficiencies. I, I, would, I would say our port system, though, is one of our great assets. I mean, yeah. We have the greatest port facilities uh, in the world. When you look at the Port of South Louisiana and New Orleans and all the, the ports along the coast, as well as the ones that are, that are in North Louisiana, we, we've got a vibrant co- port system. And one of the things this administration has done is made a new level of commitment to our ports because we recognize what an economic engine they are to uh, get product out of the United States onto foreign countries and, and also to bring in products that are needed to, to support the kind of growth that we're starting to, to see in Louisiana. And we're right on the cusp of some really good things happening, I think, from an economic development standpoint uh, in long-term future. Our, our job, our, our unemployment rate is down to the lowest it's been since 2008. Um, we had the biggest uh, economic development project in our state's history announced last year with the DCX facility, 2,000 jobs in New Orleans. Um, the Mississippi River empties into the Gulf through only one state, ours. And we're never going to be shy on that resource and taking advantage of that resource. And right. so to do that, we've got to make a commitment to our port system. So um, I think we're headed in the right direction in that regard. But there are obviously lots of, lots of infrastructure problems we have that have been neglected for far too long. I agree. And, and it's been a problem that that many in the nation are facing. And I encourage anyone who wants to read that full report. It's it's fascinating, even for us non-engineers, uh, just Google infrastructure report card. And you'll see the one for all of the states and specifically Louisiana. You know, when you talk about bringing people here, I did a lot of moving around and traveling last year at both coasts, uh, you know, D.C. I was in Texas a lot. And you see all of the development and the building and the, and the inertia of progress happening there. We have some of that here, but man, we just are down on ourselves as a state without, if someone listening to us talk about ourselves, they'd probably go, why the hell would I want to go there? You know, what do we do to change the paradigm of Louisiana to really get people to start being forward thinking and how we should spend money, uh, our education system, our roads? I mean, that comes from leadership. But what would you advise? Well, it's been kind of an about face for me because I spent 
four years doing that as lieutenant governor. Right, and, that's and right. Talking constantly about the positives of Louisiana, trying to bring people to our state, yeah. both from an economic development standpoint, but also from a, a tourism standpoint. Um, and it, the job I have now requires me to focus more on the realities of our budget problems and to manage uh, what we have and, and try and make us as productive as possible. But I've always felt like uh, we've been our own worst enemy in, in many respects in terms of the way we uh, criticize ourselves as a state. And and part of it is part of the natural dynamics of politics. I mean, there's, there's you know as well as anybody, yeah. the, the political overlay that affects all of these discussions that are taking place right now is is at a fever pitch. And the further we get into an administration, the closer we get to a new election day, the more the politics picks up and the more criticism can be expected for the person who's there now yeah. because of somebody else that wants to be there. And so you, you've got to recognize the political discourse that's going to be taking place and try and cut through that. And and my hope is that we will do that. I mean, the reason I'm in this job and I took this job was because I felt like Louisiana needed bipartisan solutions that were going to put the state first and our political party second. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're still fighting that inverse the infer inverse aspect of what's happening here and too much of what takes place in washington has found its way down to louisiana and we didn't we didn't see this quite as much in in previous years and i think it's just the the fact that we're such a divided country right now from a political standpoint but we can sometimes be our own worst enemies when we don't recognize the great things that we have as a state and the things that people admire about uh louisiana and why they want to come here so much from a from a vacation standpoint, why they want to experience our culture and our food and our our love of life, and and that that can never fail to be a part of who we are as a people. You know, you're, it's it's interesting. I was watching an interview with Trey Gowdy the other day, and he was talking about you know why why he's retiring from his uh, fourth district seat in South Carolina. And he referenced the nature of politics and how even though he is a conservative Republican, he's got friends on the other side of the aisle who, you know, who are friends and that while they may disagree on policy, he does not uh, it, it does not have any impact on his friendship with them. And he, he kind of decried the nature of politics now that it's it, it's so nasty, it's hard to get anything done. I don't see the momentum slowing there, Commissioner. I think it, it seems to be speeding up. And that can't be good when you're really trying to get things done. Well, you're right. It can't be good. And, and uh, I think the camaraderie level that exists in the legislature today is far less than it was when I was serving just a short decade ago, I guess, when I when I was still a member of the legislature. And I, I do think I have to agree with you that we've headed in the wrong direction in terms of uh, of how we we get along and how we focus on um, on the, what's best for the state as opposed to what makes my party look good or what makes my me look good uh, is somebody who's against this other person and uh, that is the nature of politics it's not going to completely go away but when it overshadows a, a willingness or a desire to try and fix things for the greater good that's when we run into some problems and and that's one of the challenges we're we're facing right now I'm afraid is that there there is obviously this is the this is a lone democrat in in the the solid red south and there are a lot of people nationally and and locally that want to see that change and, and don't want this governor to be successful and and uh, I'm afraid that's just part of the reality that we're dealing with a lot of people say, oh, that's not true. That's not the case. But anybody who's more than just a casual observer, I think, has to recognize that that is at, at play here. So what's your prediction, you, drawing from your experience of having been 
in both of the houses in the legislature, in both the House and the Senate, when you look at uh, what's ahead of us and what needs to be done, what is your gut telling you, as Ed Bugs used to say, what's your gut telling you about where we're headed? Well, I think we'll have a special session that'll begin uh, later this month. I, I do think that looks like it's going to happen, and and that is a positive move because we really need to fix this one way or the other sooner rather than later. And and I'm hoping that that special session will result in a recognition that we need to replace this revenue that's falling off the books in order to maintain doing what we're doing, and that we will also continue to have some reductions and some cuts in government because there have, this governor has made cuts. And despite the fact that a lot of people are trying to say that hadn't been the case, it is the case. It's just a pure faction. You can look at the budget items and you can see where those reductions have been made. Uh, and that's going to be a part of it, too. It, it's not going to be just raise the replacement money and we're going to fund every single thing we want to do. That's not going to be the case. It'll be, there will still be some cuts, even with revenue being raised. So I'm hopeful that will happen in in a February session, and we can go into a regular session without this cloud hanging over us and without the uncertainty of what will happen in those last three weeks of June if we don't have a budget and we don't have replacement revenue, because we'll be right back in the same soup in the last three weeks of June, and not a thing will have changed. There won't be any better solutions. There won't be any easier answers. Uh, it'll just be, we'll be right up against it. And by that point in time, there'll be a lot of damage done, not only to the state and to people who are dependent upon the state um, for resources, but also to private businesses. Because we talk about cutting $636 million out of health care and multiply that with federal matches, $2.4 billion. You are going to see some layoffs. You're going to see some difficulties in the health care delivery system. Wow. Uh, and and I don't think the public can will stand by for that. And, you know, the, another part of this discussion has been the, the credibility factor. And, and with people saying who's got the most credibility in this, whether it's Taylor Barra and, and the people with him or obviously the administration. And there are people who are saying, well, the governor's not shooting it straight. I think that there are other ways to deal with this without having to raise taxes. And as you've said numerous times here in this interview, then tell us where that is. Tell us where we can cut, where we can move, and we'll do it to get rid of this. You know, what would be your direct advice to the public about where to go to find out who's really telling the truth? Well, you know, there are various reports. I mean, obviously, the, the the whole world has changed in terms of information nowadays and information that is available, and, and there's a lot of it on the Internet with various and sundry pundits and commentaries by people, and, and some of it is stilted to one political side and, and the other. Um, you know, we, we're... I know this administration is constantly trying to put information out, and, and I've, I've said before, if, you, if, if you're going to challenge the information, challenge it. We're willing to stand behind it. And one example is this, this whole discussion that's been taking place about the $600 million in cuts that, uh, that have been made. And, and there are those saying, well, that's not right. They're not, they haven't been cuts. Well, there have been cuts, and we can document them. And, in fact, in the first um, bit of information that was put out on the $600 million, we there was a mistake made. We included twice the pushing of the 13th Medicaid payment that began under the Jindal administration. We still owe health care providers $140 million for services rendered years ago. That was included twice in that first count. It shouldn't have been. It should only have been included once. But it is a. it was a cut when it happened the first time, and it wasn't a cut the second time. But we said at the time there are a lot of other cuts that need to be enumerated that far exceed the $600 million. And with the information that's going to be put out in the next day or so, it, it'll confirm that 
the cuts have been made at that level. Uh, there are those who say, well, we want to see them made permanently. Well, you know, if you don't want to spend the money, then you reduce the revenue that comes into the state or you attempt to do, as they did last year, not to appropriate all the money, which we oppose because we think that's a mistake. If the revenue is coming in and the need can be shown to the legislature on how those dollars ought to be spent, then they ought to be appropriated. And and that's, that's what happened in this past year when the governor said, no, he was not going to hold anything back. Uh, but we're, we're ready to be challenged on things that we say because this has been the most transparent administration um, that the state has seen in a long time. And even our opponents have said that repeatedly. As time goes by, they say it less and less. But they know that the budgets we give them are honest and not based upon one-time money and not using all kind of gimmicks that they saw previously. And everything we do is transparent and available to people, and we want it that way. That's exactly what, what we've said from the get-go is how government ought to work. You know, I mentioned uh, a second ago Speaker Barra, and you know, I, I know that there was a letter that he sent to the governor, I think last week, asking for a number of things. Some people have categorized it as a demand. If you if you read the letter, I don't know that I go that far, uh, but he he categorizes it as recommendations before a fiscal session can happen, and it deals with the Louisiana checkbook and, a, and an expenditure limit and Medicaid work requirements. Obviously, you've seen this because I know that you pour over everything that you get. What about the list of, of, of requirements being requested by the speaker? Well, we were glad to finally see something because up until this week or last week when that arrived, there had not been anything by way of revenue that would be supported or or things like that that could be proposed. So I was glad to finally see something. And the governor has said that he can support virtually everything that's been proposed. We have to see the details. But, for example, work requirement for Medicaid, governor said he's for it. Didn't pass the legislature last year. The governor will support that. Yeah. Uh, transparency in government, we're absolutely doing that. There's a lot of detail about the Ohio checkbook that has been out there, but um, we're supportive of the concept of full transparency. In fact, we're working toward it. The problem is we do not have all of our departments in government, if you can believe this, on the same financial reporting system. We have only six of our departments that are on our what's called our LeGov system for budgeting. We need to move every department onto that in order to get the transparency the way it should be done. That's why we can't just snap our fingers and say we're going to uh, we're going to go buy the Ohio checkbook from this private vendor. It would be foolish to do that because we're well on our way to doing it in a way that Louisiana will own and control the information that is part of our transparency. So we certainly uh, support that notion. The expenditure limit we're looking at, it's very detailed and very confusing, and, and the governor has said he's open to discussing that, and that's under discussion right now. That's he, the, he's, it, whether there will be anything relative to an expenditure limit. And he's, ex um, he's, the he's, work, he's work suggesting... I mentioned is something that, that uh, the governor said he would support, as well as a copay for Medicaid. But yeah. none of those, Clay, none of those solve the cliff. Those right. were things put out there as we want this as a, quote, condition of supporting revenue. And we said, okay, we're listening. And that, that sounds like some things we can support. But by the way, none of them 
fix the cliff. None of them address the, the money issue that is staring us in the face. And in fact, some of them could conceivably cost us some money. But anyway, that's part of the discussion that's underway right now this week about these this list that the House wants to see. And, yes. and I think that at the end of the day, you'll see the governor saying, okay, we can support a, a, a lot of this. Whether it has to be done in the special session is a whole other question. You can do it in the regular session. So I don't know if it'll be all taken care of in the regular, I'm sorry, in the special, but the governor would certainly be in a position to say, okay, Okay, I can support this. So for for people, and and you can find it. It's it's on the internet. I'm sure the the letter. But do so. You're saying that you can support most of this. Will there be some public acknowledgement by the governor and the speaker together, or just from the governor's office on what in that letter you can absolutely either support or or, or open discussions to? I don't know the answer to that, but I would certainly hope that at the end of the day here, maybe this week, the governor and the speaker and the president of the Senate would all stand up together and say, hey, we've got something we can all agree on. We're going to fix the cliff, and and here are the things that we can support by way of the budget recommendations that the House has come up with. I would certainly hope that would be the case. I, I, I think it should be the case. Everybody ought to ante up and say, this is what we can support. I mean, it's going to be important, I think, for the Speaker of the House to say, this, these are the revenue measures I can support, uh, so that his members know that, that they are going to be supporting what he is supporting. What's your position on a constitutional convention? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have a set position on it. I, the governor has said repeatedly, and I agree with this, that is, the time is not right for a constitutional convention right now, but just simply because of the passage of time. I mean, we're in a crisis right now with this fiscal cliff. You'd have to develop the legislation to call the session, determine who the delegates are going to be, have the election to select the delegates, have the convention actually meet. It's probably a uh, probably an 18-month to two-year process to have a convention, and anything that could be done by the convention can be done by the legislature with a two-thirds vote if, if they come together on what they think are some appropriate solutions constitutionally. I would not, personally, would not be in support of a convention that just opens up the entirety of the Constitution. I would think it wiser, if we were going to have a Constitution somewhere down the line, a convention rather, to have it limited to Article 7 or the ones that directly deal with taxation issues, which seem to be the reason why a lot of people are saying we ought to have a convention. But keep in mind that it's, it's un, it seems to me it's unlikely that the public is going to endorse undoing a lot of the dedications that we have. They were placed in the Constitution because the people thought didn't trust their governors, didn't trust their legislature enough to let them loose with all the money to trade. So they put it in the Constitution that uh, we're going to give X amount of money to um, the MFP. Uh, we're going to protect supplemental pay, the things I mentioned earlier. So I don't know that the public's appetite to undedicate is as real as some people may think it is, because every time the public has had an opportunity to dedicate something recently, they've done it. As yeah. recently as two years ago, more constitutional dedications passed, not to undo them, but to add to them. You know, I kind of, to be totally transparent, kind of straddle the fence on this issue. I know that you know, we've had about almost 200 amendments to the Constitution, th- this Constitution, since it was enacted in, in I think, 1974. And while okay. while I agree that we really have to look at some of the antiquated ways that we go about dealing with state government, because it's certainly because of the, the, the reality of Louisiana today versus the reality of Louisiana 44 years ago. But... My other concern is about the politics that will be in play if there is a convention and how much 
of the end result will be based upon what's best for business, quote unquote, versus what's best for politics. And I guess I should have more trust and faith in the way that this would this would work. But seeing as how I'm not an idiot, I don't know that I could just jump headlong into saying, oh, yeah, I trust it's going to be fair and transparent and honest all the way through. Am I too cynical? Um, no, I, I think it would be transparent. I think it would be honest and, and open throughout the process, but I don't disagree with you that it will be heavily political. I mean, there's no reason to think that just because you have a constitutional convention where you presumably have elected and appointed delegates, that those delegates are not going to bring a political disposition to their de- deliberations. And, and it will be just a different cast of characters than the legislature debating the same types of issues and having the same types of prejudices or biases uh, toward particular viewpoints as to as to what ought to happen uh, with the Constitution, particularly if it's limited to, to tax issues. Um, so, it, and you know, it, it, um, I can I can relate to the '73 Constitution. I was at LSU when it happened, and I remember following it, and I so I've seen everything that's happened since, and. It is a lot different time now than it was then. And so in 1973, where you you could maybe get away with saying, well, we're going to have a representative or two of business and a representative or two of labor, for example. Nowadays, or in saying a representative of health care, two representatives of health care, now there's so many segments and special interests within all those categories. You couldn't just land, I don't think, on, a, on just a, one or two people to represent business. I mean, the industries are going to say, we want somebody. The chemical plants are going to say, we want somebody. The oil companies are going to say, we want somebody. Um, the same would be true in the healthcare arena. The issues reflecting or related to hospitals are dramatically different than those things that affect doctors. And what about other providers who all think they, they need a voice? So you'll have an awful lot of special interests who are going to surface and say, we ought to be represented in this group, either by appointment or election. And, and I think that makes it a lot more difficult to select a reasonable number of delegates. I think there were 100 and some odd delegates last time. Uh, by House member districts and then with a number of gubernatorial appointees representing certain aspects of society. And I would guess a, a convention in the 2000s or the 2010s or 20s would look similar, but you'll have an awful lot of different special interests saying, let me in. You know, it's it, this is outside of the purview of what you do every day, but seeing as how you have been uh, such a staple here in Baton Rouge as, as an elected official representing various parts of the city and then, of course, you know, going on to statewide elected office and that the capital is here, do you have some thoughts on what is either going to be a trend or an anomaly in Baton Rouge as it relates to the numbers, uh, number of murders here, it's a big topic of conversation, and it's it's starting to shape the way people look at the city and and wondering how safe the city is. Any thoughts on that? Well, none none different than any of us. It's scary, uh, and you hate to see it in, in your in your community. And it, it is becoming more and more the nightly news. It seems like you turn it on, and and it's going to lead with unfortunately a homicide somewhere or more than one. Uh, and it, it's alarming, and I and I hope we're going to be doing what has to be done to address it. And uh, but there's obviously no silver bullet anywhere. It's a problem not unique to to Baton Rouge or unique to Louisiana, but it it obviously is an ongoing concern. And has the and you probably can't get into details on this, and because I didn't tell you in advance it was coming. If you if you can't, then I I respect that. Has the governor's office been contacted at all by the state attorney general about when he is going to be releasing a decision on his findings in the Alton Sterling incident? I don't know. I can't answer that because I don't know. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, because people here are waiting on it and waiting on him, and I don't know what's taken so long, but I guess that's a whole other discussion. Maybe that's one for him. Listen, man, I appreciate it again. We got to do better than every 50 shows, though. Yeah, really. Let me know. I always enjoy visiting with you and having an opportunity to talk about the, the challenges we face and, and hopefully the solutions we're trying to provide. Commissioner of Administration, Jay Darden. This is Dr. Mary Catherine Rodrigue, and I'm Katie Fetzer. We're the owners and co-founders of The Wellness Studio, a mental health practice with locations here in Baton Rouge and Covington. We are also your host for The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com. Our podcast is a journey into the world of mental health. On our show, we're going to discuss some of the various forms of mental health conditions. We're also going to shed light on the various ways our listeners can get a better understanding of how the mind works and why we do what we do. So subscribe today to get The Waiting Room Podcast here on podcast225.com iTunes and the Talk 107.3 mobile app. Clay Young here with Brian Lowe with Brian Lowe Financial. Brian, let's think about someone nearing retirement who may not have a financial plan and could be flirting with disaster with so many things that could pop up in your life. What would you say to that person? Well, you know, how about a lot of the guys who work in the plants? Mm -hmm. You know, they show up at seven o'clock in the morning uh, on time. They check out at three or four in the afternoon or they work the night shift. You know, they, they've been doing that for 30 years. They don't have a real plan. They don't know when they can retire. You know why I know that? Because their buddy's coming in and tell me that. Right. I might help one out of 10 of those guys. He's trying to say, hey, I got 10 guys that need, need the same thing, but I mm-hmm. can't get them to come in to see you. Why? You know, when they retire, they jump right into it. They figure out, hey, they're lost. Let's get you found. Let's figure out what direction you should take. Income planning is the most important thing today. Let's put together a detailed plan to figure out how much income you need to retire on now. Brian has offices in Baton Rouge, Mandeville, and New Orleans. He's helped people all over Louisiana. Give him a call and learn more about his team at brianlowfinancial.com. This is the Clay Young Show on podcast225.com. So there you have it, wrapping up episode 150 with Commissioner of Administration Jay Darden. Hopefully you heard some things in there that were enlightening to you. Some people may agree and find some clarity in things. Others may be either angry or disappointed with whatever they heard. And hey, you know what? That's the way it works. Some people are going to like some things. Some people are not going to like it. Really doesn't matter to me. I just wanted to have the conversation. And I know that the the commissioner have has taken heat from people because he decided to go to work for Governor John Bell Edwards and be a part of his team by people. But I do believe him and take him at his word because we've been friends for so long that he did this because he thought he could be of assistance and help out with what's happening at the state. And, you know, it's sad that in politics now, and I I mentioned Trey Gowdy in the interview that nowadays, man, if you're on different sides of the political aisle, if one letter is, if the, the other person's letter next to their name is different than yours and you have to be mortal enemies, I just find that to be stupid, man. I think it's, you know, disagreement is is okay. You don't love it. I mean, I guess all of us would, in situations like policy and politics, would love to have everyone agree with us and validate our viewpoint. But sometimes people see the world differently. It still doesn't mean that you can't work something out that is in the best interest of all of the people who are being represented by said elected officials. And it seems like we're losing that. And it is becoming, I mean, the stuff on social media, the whole thing, the State of the Union address was, it was not the the display in the crowd. I mean, that way you can't, I wasn't proud of that, you know, just, I don't know. But it started a long time ago and it's been trending in this direction and I think we need to do something 
I don't know that we can do anything about it except decide not to be a-holes or not to act like kids. And, you know, I can't make anybody do it if, if, because that's the way I want to do it. You just have to accept that people are going to do things that they're going to do. You would just hope that we don't end up creating even larger problems than we need because of the way we go about doing business. So anyway, next week, talking about doing business, we will have a, a discussion with David Savona, the executive editor of Cigar Aficionado magazine. Uh, they are celebrating 25 years of talking about the good life. It is the good life magazine for men. And on the cover of the current edition is Animal House. Yeah, it's an homage to that movie, celebrating 40 years of that movie. And inside of that edition, they've got the top 25 cigars of 2017. And we will, as we do annually, talk about that selection and how they came to those conclusions and talk a little bit more about the magazine. I'm, I got to ask him about the Michael Jordan edition. MJ was on the cover of the 25th or the or of the 25 year anniversary edition and it was it was interesting the videos with him so I'll ask Dave about that and we'll talk about what's ahead with the magazine uh, as for us we're out of here thank you for listening spread the word about the Clay Young show and the waiting room podcast right here on podcast225.com y'all have a great one and happy Mardi Gras to y'all out there celebrating i think we'll take you let's take you out of here with a little Mardi Gras music yeah little rebirth brass band uh-huh supposed to be raining like a you know what out there but i'm sure for people who will be out there on mardi gras they'll be so drunk they won't even notice anyway les les bon temps roulés Y'all have a good time. Be safe, and we'll catch you next week.